Well, it's good to be together this morning. Isn't it good to be together? Even if you're with us online, it's good that you're joining us. And we're believing, even though you may not be in this room, that the same Holy Spirit that's moving in our midst is moving in your room, in your heart, in your life. If you're here and you agree, say amen. Amen. Well, we're in this season of Advent. It's It might be one of my favorite, and it might be one of the most uncomfortable seasons of the church year, Uh, because it's a season of longing. It's a season of anticipation. It's a season where the church enters into the groan of creation for the king who came and inaugurated his kingdom at his first coming, that he would come and consummate his kingdom at his second coming. So Advent is just this word that means arrival or coming. And it's the time of year, really for the church, unlike our Gregorian calendars of January, February, March, in the church calendar, Advent launches the new year. So this is really the beginning of a new way to orient ourselves around time that takes its shape from the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ. And Advent is really a season where we look back, we reflect, we remember the king who comes to us in a lowly manger. And we pause and we consider the story that has turned the world upside down. But because we live now 2,000 some years later, we long for the the man who came as a baby to come as a reigning, ruling king. Not to bear our sins away, he already did that, and we all said amen. But to bring salvation for those who wait for him. And so Advent is really a time where unless we're talking about that future coming, we are short-sighted at best. How many know that he who came is going to come again? It is right there in the Apostles' Creed, that one of the earliest confessions of the church, that the one who was crucified, dead, and buried, and raised up, and vindicated, and seated at the right hand of the Father, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He's coming again. And so what we're going to do over these next few weeks is we're going to look at various passages that articulate profoundly and that give language to the ache and the angst that God's people have felt for thousands of years between the reality of the brokenness of their culture, the barrenness of their reality, the difficulties and the complexities of the hour in which they live. Many believers were there under the heel of whoever's in charge and whoever holds the power, we do understand that we are grafted into a story of a multi-ethnic global kingdom family where the hope of the one to come again is the hope that keeps them burning through the night. 
Whereas in the West, Advent is, many times we'll just focus on all the, the, the chipper, the good, and I love the chipper and the good, good grief. I can get down on some chipper and good, amen? But Advent's a time for us to get a little bit uncomfortable and to realize that maybe our experience of freedom or our experience of how we gather and worship or our experience in the plethora of conferences, podcasts, books, and stuff is not the experience that every believer has across the earth. That there are many, even now, who are fleeing dictatorships. They're fleeing oppressive regimes. They're hiding. They're practicing the way of Jesus in secrecy all over the earth. And those believers, when they gather, do not gather haphazardly or flippantly. They gather to be shaped in such a way that when the king comes, they're ready to welcome him. How many want to live in that posture of readiness, of being alert, not lulled asleep by sin or by the flesh, not lulled asleep by the narratives that pull at our hearts and our minds and our affections, we want to be those who, who do not wait passively, but wait on the balls of their feet, because he's coming, and I'm going to be ready, and I'm going to be an instrument in his hands to do what he wants in this hour. You see, one of the great things the Lord loosed at the Reformation was this idea of justification by faith. How many are thankful, just go read all of Galatians later today, or Romans if you've got time, Galatians' big brother, but the great revelation 500 years ago was that sinful humanity is put right and made right in the sight of God apart from no merit of their own, but they're made right with God by the sheer mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The great revelation 500 years ago was that God makes sinful humans who are broken and bound by their sin. He brings them into right relationship based on the merits of another's righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This was a huge, it was always in the Bible, but somehow it got lost. And you had to earn your way. You had to live, live you had to, Give a little money to the, you know, just go read church history. But you know what? God doesn't just make us right so that we're made right with God and then we just coast on into glory. The revelation, the fullness of being made right with God is that you become an instrument, that you participate with the Spirit of God to put to right that which is still broken and bound by sin in the world. Say this with me. I am made right with God through Christ to participate in putting to right that which is broken or bound by sin. So, so many of us, we just sit, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. And then we, and praise God for that. 2 Corinthians 5.21. But I want you to know that he brings us into a place of righteousness so that then Romans chapter six, he can wield us as an instrument of righteousness in a culture that desperately needs the justice and mercy and healing love and power of Jesus Christ. So another way to say it, I am made right with God through Christ so that I can participate with Christ 
in bringing that righteousness to bear on those areas in my life, those areas in my world that are still bound or broken or bent out of shape apart from God's intervention. So how many think there's a few things in our families, our lives, our cultural moment that need the righteousness of God to be brought to bear upon them and in them and for them? Guess what? You got pulse that's going, air that's filling your lungs. You, if you're in Christ, you are God's sons and daughters through whom he wants to put those things to right. So it's not enough. It's not enough just to say, oh, I'm good. That's only one side of the glory of the righteousness of Christ. You're good with God through Jesus so that then God can now partner with you in the, bro- the various broken areas of our culture. And how many think there's a few of them out there that need the justice and the righteousness of God to be manifest? We'll turn to Isaiah 64. We're gonna just camp here. There's a little bit of an echo, brother. I don't know if you can help me out here. Jesus said this before we get to Isaiah 64 in Mark 13, verse 32. About the day or the hour, no one knows, referring to his return. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. Come on, say that. Be on guard. Be alert. You don't know at what time that will come. So there is an hour as we, as we enter into Advent, the, the longing and the ache of the season for God to come make all things new, to restore that which is still bound and broken and bent out of shape because of sin and the sinfulness of humanity and the choices that we make apart and over against God's righteousness and God's law and God's decree. We're still naming good and evil and it still results in fall after fall after fall. Can I get an Amen. The way that seems right to us will always eventually lead to the place of death apart from his intervention and redirection. Jesus said this about the end of the age. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. Love that language. Say that. I have an assigned task. I am a servant in his house. The Lord has something for me. Not just to wait and, oh, he'll come when he's ready and I can just, uh, I have an assigned task in the waiting. Come on, declare that. I have an assigned task in the waiting. Between the first advent and the second advent, there isn't a task for me. Come on, beloved, there's a task for us in 2020 as God's people in this hour. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight 
or when the rooster crows at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. Ah, oh, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Turn to your neighbor and say, stay awake. Watch, watch. Yeah, it's either we giggle or we cry. Whatever it takes to stay awake, amen? Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Watch. Watch. And what we're going to find in this passage, that waiting in this pregnant middle called between the two advents, right now, in 2020, in the pregnant middle of the now and the not yet, when the Bible says that God, through Jesus, has given us a deposit of the Holy Spirit, you and I, by the Holy Spirit, participate in our glorious future now as we walk in step with Jesus. So everywhere the church goes, we're not perfect, our king is perfect, but the world is supposed to get a foretaste, the Bible calls it, or like N.T. Wright says, like a movie trailer before the premiere. You know what I'm saying? Like a, you know the minute and a half movie preview of the real movie that's coming? Well, the life and ministry of the church, those who gather around and who, who take their shape and draw their substance from the man Christ Jesus and his kingdom, built on his promises and his word, those of us who've been adopted in, brought into the kingdom by the Spirit through the mercy and grace of Jesus, our life together, remember, I'm made right to put right. You and I, through the things that we practice, how we, how we pray, how we, our, our orientation towards our time, our treasure, and our talent, all of these little things of our life make up the whole of our life. And the whole of our life, because the Spirit is a down payment or a pledge or the first fruits of that which will come in the fullness at the second advent, our life is supposed to be like that little movie trailer. Come on, somebody. How many ever have gone to see a movie because you saw the movie trailer first? Oh, that looks awesome. I haven't been to the movies in like 17 years because of COVID or whatever, and because I have four kids, eight and under. <clears throat> but how many have ever been to the movie theater, and, and you know when you see all the previews, you've turned to your spouse or your friend or whoever you went with and go, I'm going to see that one. Come on, raise your hand if, that, if you've ever done that. That, that oh, Or no, and then you're like, oh, that one doesn't look good. Come on, somebody. The church is to be the movie trailer, the preview, the snapshot of what will come in the future but is readily available now in the grace of Christ. So that longing, that place, I, I say it like this, that place to belong, that place to be seen that place to have a significant part to play, that place in those people to call family. All of those things in Christ and in the community oriented around Christ called the church, our life together is meant to be like that preview that when others get a glimpse, oh, I don't know, Jesus sort of says it like this, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Someone said that, in the same way. 
Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Come on, how many want our life and our practice to be that billboard of hope that there's a place for a dying, bound, and broken world to come and to belong. Whether it's at your workplace, the grocery store, you're coming and you're going. You and I are meant to be and to become those people that perk an interest, that there's another way. There's another way. And in between that time of the now, we look back, first advent, over the next few weeks, we'll look at the, the narrative that shapes in, around Jesus. And then the second advent, when the king will come. And here we live right here. And how many know so many of our brothers and sisters what keeps the oil, what keeps their, their little wick burning is the hope that they have that their current suffering, sorrow, setback, tragedy, difficulty, that will not have the final word in their story. And so that's the season, that's Advent. It's the time between. And how many, instead of using our little blip, you know, James 4, our little vapor, instead of just cruising on by, and I'm talking to a bunch of kingdom Jesus lovers, you could just, oh, I'm, I'm right, I'm made right, I'm righteous. Advent is that time of year where Jesus calls us out of our slumber and to get into the pregnant middle with him. Ugh. It's where Jesus Christ calls us to go to those points of pain. I know no one likes it, but it's the season we're in. Those places that have the ache, the longing for a God to come and to make and to restore and to heal God says, my people are those who join me in that middle messy place. And if you just do a quick perusal through church history, the church has been at its most infectious, compelling, winsome when it goes to those places of pain and it bears witness to the rule and reign and healing mercy of Jesus Christ. The church has not been at its best or most compelling when it's at the center with all of the power in the place of ease and comfort and, oh, it's all good, it's all about us. When we go to the place of pain and bear witness with those in that place that there's another way and he's coming, he's coming now, you have access and that which you don't experience in the realm of your ache and longing, by the grace of God, he'll consummate and finish the thing that he started at his first coming when he comes again. And it's when the church, when we're mobilized, remember those instruments of righteousness, when we go to those places in humility and tenderness, listen, the only thing the Bible says that's supposed to be evident to all is your gentleness. I don't, that's another message, not right now. 
Let your gentleness be evident to all, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Why? Because the Lord is near. So we go, we enter into those places of pain. Advent reminds us that there's an angst, there's a, there's a longing, there's an ache inside every human heart. Did you know that one of the core longings of the heart is the cry for justice? Did you know that the, the worst pagan sinner or the most shiny, righteous, holy saint, every one of them has that sense, whether or not their moral fabric is fully frayed or broken or not. Even if you just say, hey, watch a movie, everyone wants the good guy to, or gal to win in the end. Did you know that? That God actually put that longing in us for justice. God, make it right. And it's in this season, saints, that we enter into that cry. Come, Lord Jesus. Make that which is wrong right. Make that which is bound or broken or bent out of shape by sin. Make it straight. Make it whole. Make it healed. Lord, we enter into that pregnant, messy middle, that point of pain where our sojourners, our fellow pilgrims in life who are waiting for Christ to return and to finish what he started, we're going to join Jesus in the messy middle and we're going to cry with them, come Lord Jesus, come, make all things new. All right, Isaiah 64. I won't have to make a lot of comments. That's why I love the prophets because they, they use such beautiful poetic language like I can't really improve on. But look at Isaiah 64. This is a, the Advent prophetic passage today that the global church is reading. Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How many think the prophet's doing pretty good so far? Or one translation, that you would rend the heavens, tear them open. Have you ever been in that place? Lord, I need a breakthrough. Come on, someone say amen. Tear them open. I need you. I can't. How the mountains would quake in your presence. As fire causes the wood to burn. Who made a fire over the Thanksgiving season? A few hands. As fire causes wood to burn and water to boil, your coming would make the nations tremble. How are we doing so far for an Advent cry? Tear open the heavens. Just like the fire sets the wood on fire and makes the cold water hot and boil, Lord, we need you to come and to intervene in this generation, in this hour. And if you come, the nations would tremble when they see you. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. Does anyone else remember in Israel's story when God caused mountains to shake and to tremble? Help me, somebody, help me. The Exodus, right? When he delivers them, do you think Pharaoh had any doubt on the power of Yahweh in his name? Come on. Every plague is an accusation and a condemnation of a false god of Egypt until finally the firstborn is slain. The Passover, 
The angel of death passes over those who have the blood of the lamb on the door and the lintel, and they're delivered and rescued. Do you think the gods of Egypt and the gods and all of their manifestations, past, present, and future, that try to set themselves up as rivals to the one true God, do you think they understand that when God shows up, it gets real clear who's on a throne that's unshakable? And that's what the prophet's saying. Lord, this is a part of our history. You caused mountains to shake in Exodus 19 through 22 when you gave us the law and the fire and the smoke and the whole community was like, I'm not going up there. And God's all, probably a good idea. They'd probably die. Just send Moses. Come on, but how many know because of the grace of God, all of us can go up that mountain now because Jesus Christ has made a way. Just read all of Hebrews chapter 12. We can go up that mountain covered in the blood of Jesus, stand in that place of holiness, righteousness. Did you know one of the greatest ways we participate in the pregnant middle is by becoming a people of prayer, where we agree with the God who wants to come and to make all things new. When you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations and oh, how the mountains quaked. Verse four, for since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. It's in the season of Advent where un, contrary to popular opinion and to the cultural narrative of the John Wayne that you've got to make it happen, you've got to do it, it's all dependent on you, we find a resolve rise up in our hearts that there are some things I actually cannot do. I'm going to wait for him to do it. Waiting is not weakness. Come on, let me say that again. Adopting a posture of waiting is not weakness. If you go forward in pride and try to do the pro fix the problem that either you created because of your choices or someone else created because of their sinful choices, you can, how many have ever done this? You make a greater mess on your way trying to fix it instead of waiting on the Lord and his word and his law and his guidance. A few hands should be raised. That if you don't wait, it can be more costly than if you did wait for the word of the Lord to come, to bring correction, cleansing, and then to commission you to go at it again in his way, not your way. And his strength, not your strength. So look at that word. He says he works for those who wait for him. Say that with me. He works for those who wait for him. So this takes waiting out of the passive spectator. Oh, I, this terrible theology that has a shred of truth. Oh, God, I'll just do what he wants to do. That's fine. It's cool. How many know that is? No, he works for those who are waiting for him. I'm waiting for you to come. Listen, the prophet knows that it was never because of Israel's righteousness or holiness that he delivered the first time. He knows they're in a place of exile, of barrenness and brokenness because their whole life is bent out of shape because of their sin and their addiction to lesser loves and idols and gods of the nations around them. He knows the God who, apart from them, delivered them the first time is still the same God who can deliver them again if they'll wait and do it on his terms instead of their terms. 
And friends, we've tried everything. We've never had more technology, more finances, more access to resources, but I'm telling you, only God can make the mountains tremble. We wait for you, God, not in pride or presumption that we can figure it out and we can, no, Lord, in this season of Advent, show me where the source and the strength of my salvation lies. This is good preaching. Is everyone doing okay? God, there's no God like you who works for those who wait for him. What if in this season, instead of getting caught up in the frenzy of more, of bigger, how many know that's one long wild adventure of trying to plug holes that have bigger holes behind those holes? How many would say without a shadow of a doubt that the bigger, brighter, better, brand new does not scratch the itch that you have in your soul? It won't fill the void for significance, belonging, purpose, hope. Those things that we just medicate and medicate and put band-aids on. We need God, the God who causes mountains to tremble, to go even deeper still all the way to that place of our, of our heart, of our soul. And then verse 5, you welcome those who gladly do good, who follow godly ways. So you have to see the sequence. What did I say at the very beginning? We're made right so that we can, by participating with him, put right. So those who are waiting, what do they do? Are they waiting like this? Or are we becoming instruments of righteousness, going to the places of pain, brokenness, the barren, pregnant, messy middle, and saying, Jesus, come here. Let your gentleness be evident to all. But the one who's in me is greater than the one who's in the world, who humanity and their sin have partnered with, and all it's done is brought death, decay, darkness, and destruction. But as believers enter into those places together of pain, we're able to bear witness to another king, another lord, another savior, and another kingdom. And it's in that place of waiting. We're not just spectators. We're active participants in the God who will come at the end of the age to make all things new and who is currently coming wherever his people go in cooperation with his spirit. It's good. So he works for those who wait. And then he says that in verse five. So what are they doing when they're waiting? They're gladly doing good. How many think we are experts at making simple kingdom principles very, very complicated so that we don't have to obey them. I read that. I got an email. I, I remember it vividly, probably 12 years ago. I still, in an old, old email, don't even have any more. But someone emailed this little quote that says, we make the simple complex so that we don't have to obey it. Because if I can't figure it out or understand it, it gives me permission or a license to say, it doesn't apply to me, only to the super smart or the super spiritual. Come on, anyone else ever done that with God besides me? And so here's the language. The God who causes mountains to tremble, he works for those who wait. Well, what do those who wait look like? They're just giving their hearts and their lives to doing good. Did you know that that actually, in and of itself, if we would just say yes to that mandate in between the advents, all sorts of cool God stuff might break out around us. 
Come on, Gene, you got two or three master's degrees. He says those who do good and follow godly ways, this is a primary way that God will show the glory of his son. They'll see your good works and praise your father on the day he visits us. How many know if that's the litmus to being made right and then to beginning to learn by the grace of God to love and to do what is right through those simple, ordinary acts, the God of all glory can be glorified through your simple obedience. I got a couple mmms, but that was good news, friends. That means everyone can participate. Who in this room, by the grace of God, can do something good for the glory of God? Raise your hand. Okay, all of us then are, we're invited to, to play. And then he goes on to say, but you have been angry with us, for we are not godly. We're constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? The prophet's being very honest here. We're all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. They're like autumn leaves that wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. How many know our picture is pretty bleak at best without reference to the Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ? Come on, how many of you are gonna be honest this morning? That's all of us apart from Jesus, which is why we celebrate the first Advent. How many are thankful that he became sin so that in him we could become participants in the very righteousness and justice of God. The prophet knows it. We didn't learn our lesson when you delivered us from Egypt and later on in Israel's history. We're not gonna learn our lesson when you raise up King Cyrus and we get to come home from exile. Why? Was it the problem on God's end or was it in the hearts of sinful people? Right here, man. And so the prophet says, Lord, we know that in, in, in essence, that this whole scenario is pretty simple. To, to love what you love and to do what you do. Pretty simple. But Lord, we find when we try to do that, we love other things and therefore we do other things that do not bring life but death. How many know that description applies to billions of people on the earth right now? We have an assignment. Come on, someone say it. Remember that passage in Mark? I got an assignment. I have a task. I got an assignment. And he, this is how low sin takes us. Verse seven, yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. Therefore, you've turned away from us and you've turned us over to our sins. How many know that it's one of the worst things imaginable that, that God actually gives us what we want? C.S. Lewis, the brilliant philosopher, theologian, said this, at the end of the, at the, end of the age, when, when, when God, you know, when Jesus gives judgment, he'll just be able to simply look at people and say, your will or my will will be done. That's, it. That's as easy as it will be for God. The most terrifying thing about God is that he'll give us what we want. 
How many know we are in a culture that has over and over and over told God thanks, but no thanks. We know better. We can build better. We think we know better about sexuality. We think we know better about marriage. We think we know better about the, the sanctity and value of life. We think we know better about the poor. We think we know. How many know that when you take the God who sustains the whole thing out of the equation, you're not left with a foundation that can bear the weight of human reality and human sin? And the most terrifying thing is that God, to the nation of Israel, and that God, to nations after Israel, the most terrifying thing is when we collectively raise our fists and our voice and say, thanks, but no thanks, we are God, we know better. The most terrifying thing that God could ever do is give those people what they want. Which is why our cry in America right now is, have mercy, O God. It is not because we have some moral foundation of our own merit. We are, we are pleading for the mercy of God as we live in a generation and in a culture that says thanks but no thanks. We know better than you. Come on, how many know we need his mercy? This is no small thing. This is a perfect season. It's Advent. We're waiting. Come, Lord. He says, no one calls. You know what I think maybe one of the most important verses in the Bible is? And I'm almost done, by the way. I got started late. One of the most important Bible verses in the scriptures is Genesis 3, 9. That even though the most terrifying thing about God might be that he gives humans what they want in their sinfulness and rebellion, knowing full well where it'll take them, one of the most epic things about God when Adam and Eve sinned, and I want to write a book about it someday, is when God, when, when Adam and Eve sin and they rebel and they hide and they put, gar, you know, they make leaves. And, did you know that if God had not said in Genesis 3, 9, where are you, there would have been no depth to which humans could have descended apart from God. The where are you of God wasn't this mean, scolded face. It's God saying, I will not give up on you, even in your rebellion and sin. Come on, someone say it over your life. He won't give up on me. He won't give up on us. He won't give up on my family. When I see God walk in the garden, knowing full well they've just soiled his good, perfect creation, and when he says, where are you? He initiates the redemptive quest to put that which we will perpetually make wrong, broken, and bent out of shape by sin. He's devoted to remaking and redeeming all things through himself. When if it, listen, what would have happened to the storyline if God wouldn't have showed up and said, where are you? I know we're shaped in the way of self-sufficiency and self, 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 and we think, oh, we could have got back to God's saints. There is no way back apart from his initiating and pursuing love. All right. Yet you, O oh Lord, are our father. We are the clay, come on somebody, and you are the potter. We're all formed by your hand. So don't be so angry with this, Lord. Please don't remember our sins forever. Look at us, we pray, and see that we are all your people. And the, look, the Lord says, and this is in closing, Isaiah 65. 
I was ready to respond, but no one asked for help. Look at this. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. I said, here I am. Here I am. It's right here in the Bible. To a nation that did not call on my name. All day long, I opened my arms to a rebellious people, but they follow their own evil paths and their own crooked schemes. Advent reminds us that the mess in the middle is usually a result of our own choices to want to be God, to be the star of our own story. Can I get an amen? But the glory of Advent is that there's another way to live. There's another way to be. He's our father. Come on. He's the potter. He doesn't have to throw the clay away. The clay can try to jump off the wheel and go and to become its own shape and thing. But how many of you know the greatest, even though it means cleansing and pruning and even, come on somebody, say amen. Even though it means the fire of refinement, come on somebody, say amen. Even though it means the, the process of being humbled and brought low in our own heart and life, the glory of surrender, the glory of in the messy middle saying, Lord, here am I. I'm gonna call on your name. Even if no other will, I'll beseech you for mercy for my life, for my family. Lord, in the midst of the the waiting and the longing. I'm not going to be passive. I'm going to step into the story. I have an assigned task in the epic story that's unfolding through your son, Jesus. And we just say, here am I. And the Lord's like, my whole life, I've held my arms open to rebellious people, but no one's asking for me. And Advent is the season of year where the church steps in and says, We'll wait for you. Come on, somebody say it. I'll wait for you. I'll step in. I'm not gonna be asleep like we read earlier. I wanna be awake. I don't wanna be weighed down by carousing detestable idolatry and the lusts of the flesh. Read Romans 13. Lord, I wanna be awake. I wanna put away the deeds of darkness because I know you're coming and I know there's a task for me in this middle. There's a task between the advents. You want to make me right with you through Jesus. And then with Jesus and the power of the Spirit, with my family, you want us to put that which is wrong right through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Stand up on your feet. That's why I said four or six times in worship, restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How many today are standing in the gap for God's mercy to be manifest in someone you know's life? Raise your hand. Come on, who's standing in the gap right now in this Advent season? You say, man, Lord, they may not be calling on you right now, but I'm gonna call on your name for their behalf. Come on, someone say amen to that. It's called intercession. Jesus is always, Ezekiel 22, he's always looking for somebody to intervene. And as soon as he finds someone to partner with, he'll come by their side. Come on, there's another in the fire. Come on, someone say amen. There's one who enters into the mess with us. He came once 
and he's coming again. And he's not sitting on his throne just hoping we figure it out. He's ready to partner. Come on, someone say it. He's ready to partner. He's ready to show up. He's ready to empower us. He's ready to show mercy. He's just looking for people. So Lord, we surrender this this morning, this first Sunday of Advent. We heed the word of Jesus to watch, to stay awake. Just right now, say, Lord, show me my assigned task. Maybe you're a retiree. Maybe you're soon to be retired. Maybe you're just starting a new career. Maybe you've had a career forever and you're ready to be. Wherever you're at, the Lord has an assignment for you in that season. And just say, Lord, show me. Empower me. I'm going to stand in the gap. And then right now, just those that you want to stand in the gap for, just say their name. Don't be shy. You don't have to shout it. But let's just, let's just speak those names that need the mercy of God. Come, Jesus. Right now. Rend the heavens. Tear open the heavens and come down. And then let's just begin to tell him, thank you, Lord, that even though you looked and couldn't find someone, Lord, let us be those people that you find who are turned toward you because you drew us to yourself. Lord, let us be those people in this season, those people who are pregnant with hope, that he who started will finish and carry it on to completion. Come on, someone say, he does not leave unfinished that which he initiates. And Lord, this season reminds us we're gonna step into the middle between the advents and by the grace of Christ, we're gonna be your people. In Jesus' name, we all said amen and amen, amen. I love you guys. Have a phenomenal week.